Today's featured audio is from the 2017 Low Carb Cruise. Go to lowcarbcruiseinfo.com to join us in 2018 for two exciting cruises, the 11th annual Low Carb Cruise coming May 20th through the 27th, and then a bonus Keto 101 cruise coming September 23rd through the 30th, 2018. Get full details at lowcarbcruiseinfo.com. Wouldn't you love to find a nut that is low in carbs, high in fat, and perfect as a healthy ketogenic snack? Well, look no further than Peely Nuts. That's spelled P-I-L-I. Go to eatpeelynuts.com and use the coupon code LLVLC at checkout to get 10% off of your order of these one-of-a-kind keto nuts. Peely Nuts are higher in fat than any other nut out there with a whopping 23 grams of total fat, and they have the fewest carbohydrates at just one one gram per one ounce serving. Plus, these delicious nuts are loaded with a full array of vitamins and micronutrients, including vitamin E, magnesium, potassium, manganese, calcium, phosphorus, and more because of the mineral-rich volcanic soil that they're harvested from in the Philippines. If you've never tasted a Peely nut, you'll be pleased to know that it's got a soft bite and a buttery flavor unlike any other nut you've ever put in your mouth. EatPeelyNuts.com is the original company to bring sprouted Peely Nuts to the United States and are also the first to offer them sprouted in coconut oil for added healthy saturated fats. I absolutely love Peely Nuts and I think you will too. Try them for yourself by visiting eatpeelynuts.com and don't forget to use my special coupon code LLVLC at checkout to get 10% off of your order. Give them a taste and you'll see there's no better nut than a Peely Nut. Coming up in episode 1345, Jackie Eberstein. Connecting and educating and making the world a more informed and healthier place. You're listening to the Live and La Vida Low Carb Show with Jimmy Moore. You've helped change so many lives and give us all the courage to take on the rest of the world. This is the longest running health podcast on the air today. You've done so much to spread the word about how diet matters. Over 1,000 episodes strong and counting. The amount of lives that you've changed at this point is incalculable. And now, here's our host and international best-selling author. You're like the LL Cool J of podcasting. Jimmy Moore. Um, so it's nice to be here on, I guess, my ninth annual of this low-carb cruise. Um, and it's nice to see so many people and to see so many that we've uh, that I've met over the over the years. So as Jimmy said, he gave me a topic. And when Jimmy gives you a topic, you do what Jimmy tells you. So... Um, I'm going to talk about uh, the test to take a look at, especially if you're if you're just starting low carb, because it's important to have a baseline um, of your your test so that you can compare during, as you go through the process. So, um, are you metabolically healthy? So those are the tests that I'm going to be um, concentrating on. It's but it's not every single test by all means that you may need to get done at some point. But these are the most important, I think, baseline ones so that then you can move on from here. So why is it important to get baseline tests? And that's a mistake I have found over the years that a lot of people do when they change their diet. And they don't get baseline tests, and then four months down the road, they get some blood done, and they get numbers they don't understand. And so it's very important to establish a baseline, and actually for anything, not just if you're going to do low-carb or, or lose weight, 
But you should have tests done for comparison as you go through life and as you get older. And you want to get it done when you're younger and healthier so you know what your numbers should look like when you're younger and healthier. And then that gives you some idea if things are beginning to not look uh, the way they should. You want to identify any abnormal or potential trouble spots, including those that may be related to your genetics. One of the ones, of course, that we all talk about is type 2 diabetes. And that is, a, there is a genetic component. And so if you have a family history of type 2 diabetes, it's very important that you know what your blood sugar and insulin looks like when you're younger and healthier and closer to a, a healthier weight. You also want to look at numbers that can be made worse as you gain weight and can be get better as you lose weight, because that can be motivating for you to know what you need to address. One of the other important issues is not just from motivation for weight loss, but motivation for health. And one of the interesting things that I've come across in my reading is that people of Asian descent will get into metabolic difficulty at much lower um, body fat percentages than Caucasian people do. And so it's important to understand it isn't just about weight, it's about your health. And so for people of Asian descent, if you have a body mass index of 23, that's already a red flag. Whereas United States, 25 is the number that we begin to think of as being overweight. And we need to start feeling like we need to do something about it. But if you're Asian, you need to start earlier. And we know in many of the Asian countries, um, there are increasing rates of obesity and type 2 diabetes, same as we have here. You want to be realistic about what your risks are. And one of the one of the reasons why you want to do some of this testing is so that you don't just do a total cholesterol and your number is 210 and your doctor tells you, well, your cholesterol should be below 200. We need to put you on a statin. And that happens very frequently. And the reason why you don't want to do that is you want to know what your other lipids are. You want to know what your glucose and insulin metabolism is because those are important risk factors. Your total cholesterol isn't really very important. And if that's all you're really looking at, you may wind up on lifelong use of medications that can open you up to, um, first of all, expenses, but second of all, potentially dangerous side effects from medications you may not need. So you want to clear a picture of what your risk factors are. You want to understand what kind of dietary changes may be best for you. Now, certainly... I happen to believe that everybody should get off foods with added sugar and, and refined grains. But there are certainly people who very clearly fall into the insulin resistance, hyperinsulinism, risk of diabetes category. And those are people, I think, that the first choice is always going to be carbohydrate restriction. That would be if you have a history of um, <clears throat> diabetes in your family. If you've had gestational diabetes during a pregnancy, that's a huge red flag. Polycystic ovary syndrome, that's an insulin resistance syndrome and can be treated with carbohydrate restriction rather successfully. Metabolic syndrome, of course, you know, also known as prediabetes. And if you're simply a carb addict, if you're someone who just can't give up your carbs or can't imagine living your life without carbs, you're someone who has to seriously consider whether you really need um, to get off carbs because that's a sign of carbohydrate intolerance or if you're someone with reactive hypoglycemia, which has been mentioned in, in a couple of the other lectures. Reactive hypoglycemia is a low blood sugar response, usually to eating 
carbs prior to or sometimes going too long without eating in someone who's on a uh, high-carb diet. And that's not the opposite of diabetes. It is a precursor of diabetes, and it's important to understand that, and that's a risk factor for you to address. That's what I was found to have in 1974 when I started to work with Dr. Atkins. I didn't know what caused these intermittent symptoms, and he was the one who found it when he insisted I do a glucose tolerance test when I first started working with him. And if I hadn't found out that I had reactive hypoglycemia, I certainly by this time would have been diabetic. My father um, was diabetic, my mother's side of the family morbid obesity. I was a carb addict since as far back as I could remember. So once I knew I had reactive hypoglycemia, I could see all of these pieces falling into place and I knew I had some risks for the rest of my life if I didn't deal with it. So for me, that was very motivating. Of course, it always helped to come to work every day and to reinforce uh, what I was teaching people to do. You have to learn to walk your talk. Um, And if you don't, you're just not as credible. Um, It's also important to do these tests when you're young and healthy, because you may be now, but that doesn't mean you will be in the future. And you may not recognize that you're getting into trouble unless you know what your baseline is. So Now, there are roadblocks to get testing done, um, and it it can vary depending upon states. you, will your insurance cover it? Um, if you have, if you don't have a particular diagnosis, often you can't run a test, so you may have to pay out of pocket, and some tests can get to be very expensive. You may not know what tests to do. Your doctor may not know what tests to do. Um, so hopefully, you'll get some information from my talk today about what you might, where you maybe want to fill in the gaps of your own testing or things that you hadn't looked at. Your doctor may not be open to testing. That's very common. I know I've run into that a lot with women on thyroid medication or having symptoms of low thyroid, but the doctor's not really willing to do thorough testing because they don't think it's necessary. And consequently, we miss that diagnosis in a lot of people. There are states that prohibit you from getting self-testing. New York State is one of them, which is where I used to work. And if I wanted to have a test done... um, I couldn't just go to a lab and, and get it, even if I was willing to pay out of pocket for it. The state wouldn't want you to do that. Luckily, I you know, just got it done from everyone in the office, so I never had to worry about getting testing done. Now it's different. I live in Virginia, and when I was looking for my primary care doctor, we had a few moments of discussion from time to time about things. He, he at this point, doesn't disagree with me. He just doesn't say anything. <laughs> As long as he does what I need, it's fine. I don't really care. But um, you may not know what your results mean if you get testing done, especially if you order the test on your own. And then you may not know what to do about it. So there are a lot of uh, challenges you have to, you have to uh, deal with. So I'm just going to start with some of the tests, and I'll go through this as quickly as I can because some of them you're going to be familiar with, and I don't want to run over time. So the very basic test, and I'm sure you probably have had done it sometime in your life, is a comprehensive metabolic panel. And that's a screening tool that's often done on a yearly exam. I'll review what's included in that test shortly. It can be used as a diagnostic test. It can be used to monitor your treatment. Uh, It can be used to monitor the course of of a condition. So that's important. And a complete blood count. They're often done together, and I'll go over what that means. So this is what's included in the comprehensive metabolic panel. 
you're going to look at glucose, gives you some idea of whether you have metabolic syndrome, prediabetes, type 2 diabetes, um, calcium is measured. That's important for your bones and for blood clotting and a variety of other things. Uh, if your calcium is high, that can be indicative of hypoparathyroidism. Um, so that was an important one. Calcium is usually normal. When it isn't, then that may require further testing. Sodium is important for nerve muscle function, fluid balance. Potassium is important, um, and that's also important for, for muscle cellular function. It's, it's important for cardiac muscle. If your potassium is too high or too low, you can start having some problems with cardiac rhythm. Carbon dioxide, the CO2 is how it's labeled on your test. That's your acid-base balance. That's important. It's particularly important for people with type 1 diabetes who may be getting into acidosis and their CO2 levels are low. Chloride also helps regulate fluid balance along with sodium. Albumin is a major protein in your serum. Uh, that's measured regularly along with total proteins. That measures the albumin plus all your other serum proteins. BUN is kidney function, blood urea nitrogen. Now, one of the common things that we've seen is, you know, people worry about kidney function on low carb because they think all this huge amounts of protein you're eating are going to cause kidney failure, which is clearly not the case, but that's a myth that's been around for decades and I continue to hear. When people sometimes go for their fasting labs in the morning, they're not well hydrated, they're dehydrated. And so what you can see is that the BUN will be slightly elevated and then the doctor gets all worried or the patient does. So when you're going to go for fasting blood tests, make sure you have water in the morning and it will avoid a, a false positive result on the BUN. Creatinine is another test for kidney function that we do. Now these other tests, the alkaline phosphatase, can be a reflection of liver function, it can be a reflection of bone health. The ALT, SGPT, SGOT, and bilirubin are all reflections of liver function. And some of the abnormalities of those tests can give you an idea of whether you're developing non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, um, which is um, on the increase. So I'll talk about that a little later. In addition, you might want to order a, get a GGT order. That's not a part of the, an original comprehensive panel, but it's an important one because if it's elevated, it can, put, it can help you diagnose liver conditions, including non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. It should be checked in anyone who's overweight or obese, so you should have a baseline, because about 72% of people with type 2 diabetes have non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. So there are lots of people with it. 42% um, of American adults have non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. And about 25% of them will progress to a more serious condition called NASH, non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, where there's chronic low-level inflammation in the liver. And what happens over time is liver cells are destroyed. Once they're destroyed, they don't come back. And it causes fibrosis, stiffening, loss of function of the liver cells, which can ultimately lead to the need for a liver transplant or can ultimately be fatal. And so it's very important that you know the health of your liver and that you follow that, especially if you're gaining weight. And what we see in obese kids and kids with type 2 diabetes, these are kids, preteen kids, they're already developing non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. So it's, 
it's escalating in our in our country. And it's also the, the liver functions can be elevated in alcohol abuse. And so part of the role of your doctor is to find out are they elevated because you're drinking too much or are they elevated because you're depositing fat in the liver. Uric acid is another important one to measure. It's usually elevated in obesity. It can be part of uh, some of the characteristics of metabolic syndrome or prediabetes. It's not usually part of the regular panel, so you would want to have it measured. It can predispose you to gout and also uric acid kidney stones. Um, interesting thing that I came across is that it has a positive side to it. Uh, uric acid may be one of the body's natural antioxidants, just like cholesterol is. So sometimes if these things are elevated, it may be a sign that your body is stressed and you need to do something about it. Your body is making more antioxidants to try to protect you from something. So uric acid may be one of those um, that function that way. Now, complete blood count is when you measure um, all the different kinds of blood cells. Uh, there's white blood cells, red blood cells. They can be uh, used for screening for infection, certainly for anemia, allergies. Some of the blood cells are elevated um, in allergy, cancers, bleeding, if you've lost enough uh, blood, you're going to have a low concentration of blood cells, inflammation, they'll be elevated. Um, so they're very important to take a look at because it can also help with screening but monitoring your condition and monitoring your treatment. Platelets are important, obviously, because of blood, blood clotting. Um, and oftentimes we get in difficulty with platelets is because your blood is too thick, your cells stick together, and you're likely to get blood clot. And when there's inflammation, your cells get sticky. And one of the tests that can be measured is a sedimentation rate. And what, what you simply do is they put your, your um, blood in a test tube and they wait to see how long it's going to take for all your cells to settle to the bottom of the test tube. And when you have a lot of inflammation, whether it be acute or chronic, uh, it takes a lot longer because your cells are sticky. And so that can be a test, again, that's used for diagnosis, for monitoring treatment, or the progress of your condition. People with cancer can have very high sedimentation rates. People with autoimmune disease like rheumatoid arthritis, things like that, can also have very high levels. Now, this is an important one. We talk about it all the time when we talk about um, weight, when we talk about weight management, when we talk about prevention of, of diabetes, is glucose and insulin metabolism. It's important because it affects every cell in your body. And if your glucose is abnormal, whether too high, too low, or dropping too quickly, or your insulin levels are either too low or non-existent, which would be uh, present in the type 1 diabetes, or too high, which is characteristic of the earlier stages of type 2 diabetes, it's important that this is looked at. So a random glucose is just a glucose done at any time during the day. It's not very useful because you don't really know what to compare it to. If it's a fasting, that's one thing. We know you haven't had any food for 8 to 12 hours. But if it's random and it's high, you have no idea uh, what it really means. And then it really has to be followed up. It's going to be affected by what you ate and how long ago you ate and how much you ate. But the fasting glucose is important. Normal for most labs is 70 to 99. <clears throat> and if you have what's called impaired fasting glucose, that's when your fasting glucose is 100 to 125. If it's 126 or higher on two different occasions, then you have type 2 diabetes. 
Now, what's important when you're looking at these things is to know that when you're getting in trouble and working toward getting type 2 diabetes, your fasting blood sugar is usually the last thing that really starts to get abnormal. From, from looking at oral glucose tolerance tests, and we did thousands of them over the decades at Atkins, we would see fairly normal fasting, but the after-eating postprandial sugars were, could be very, very high, and you actually could have diabetes. So if you're after-eating blood sugar is too high, um, that's called impaired glucose tolerance. You're not tolerating the glucose load that you ate. And if you're above 140 to, to 199, you have prediabetes. If you're 200 or higher on two tests, you have diabetes. So it's the after-eating blood sugars and insulins that are more important than the fastings. The fastings become abnormal later in the stages of these conditions. Now, there is a proper prep for a glucose tolerance test, whether you're going to do a two-hour test or a five-hour test that we used to do. Um, you have to be fasting with only water for at least 12 hours. Most medications you don't take. Unless you have a seizure disorder, we would allow people to take them. We would have them bring their meds with them, and as soon as the test was finished, then they can take their medications. No smoking for the 12 hours before and no smoking during the test. Nicotine affects your blood sugar. So if you, if you have a lot of nicotine in your system just before the testing or if you're smoking during the test, you're not going to know what the changes in the levels may have been due to, whether it was smoking or whether it was uh, your, your body's reaction to the test itself. And there is a dietary preparation, and I see, I see people go on low-carb forums and say, oh, I want to see how my glucose is, so... I'm doing low-carb, so I'm going to have a two-hour glucose tolerance test. You may get some very strange results if you do it after you've been on a very low-carb diet. There is a prep you need to do, 150 grams of carbs a day for three days before the test. Because your body, if you've been off carbs for a long time, isn't going to suddenly know how to give you a clear picture of your glucose tolerance test by suddenly dumping in a whole lot of glucose. Um, so you need to do a prep, and once we have people on a low-carb diet, we don't repeat a glucose tolerance test. We would do it if you come back to the office two years later, 50 pounds heavier, then we might do it again. But, um, and nobody likes the test, so that's motivation not to do that. Um, and if you're going to do the 150 grams, and you don't want to get in a lot of high-sugar foods, which we don't recommend, you just do the higher glycemic load foods, mostly in vegetables and whole grains and things like that. Don't get into the donuts and the high fructose corn syrup and the pizza, which, of course, people use in, as an excuse to party for a few days. So we did the five-hour glucose and insulin tolerance test, and it isn't a pleasant test to do because you have to get stuck any number of times, but it gives you a huge amount of information. Um, so what it does, it measures uh, serial levels of glucose and insulin after we get a baseline. And then we give you a measured amount of glucose to drink based on your body weight. So if you were, I can't remember exactly, but if you weighed up to 200 pounds, you got 75 grams of glucose. Now, just figure in the scheme of things, how many grams does the average American eat in a day? You know, 200, 250, 300 grams of glucose. And we're simply just giving 75 to someone who weighs less than 200 pounds. And yet you can clearly see abnormalities that way. And if someone who weighed 400 pounds, we would often give them um, 
225. They would have to drink three bottles of this really disgusting, syrupy thing. Do you struggle to get nutrient-dense organic vegetables into your ketogenic diet? Then let me introduce you to Dr. Cowan's Garden. Visit drcowansgarden.com, D-R-C-O-W-A-N-S-G-A-R-D-E-N.com, and be sure to use the coupon code JIMMY at checkout. You'll get 20% off of your first order. So what is Dr. Cowan's Garden? They are powders that make it easy for people to diversify their vegetable consumption, which is a key to optimal health. Some of the powders are made from plants that are difficult, if not impossible, to find in stores or farmer's market that are much more nutritious for you, such as perennial greens, ashtiba, sea vegetables, and so much more. The purpose is to help people eat a wide variety of plants, and they've made it so easy with Dr. Cowan's Garden. The vegetables are cooked prior to dehydration to reduce their anti-nutrients and to increase nutrient absorption. They dehydrate the vegetables on low heat to preserve the nutrients and then they store these powders in Miron jars, which prevent the aging wavelengths of light from penetrating so that the powders stay more flavorful and aromatic over time. I personally love the leeks, and I think you will love Dr. Cowan's Garden as well. Again, go to drcowansgarden.com, and don't forget to use the coupon code JIMMY at checkout to get 20% off of your first order. Dr. Cowan's Garden. They're back and better than ever at JimmyLovesFBomb.com. They are the F-Bomb company. Fat is smart fuel. They have made some incredible products for the ketogenic community, and they make keto easier. They have products that include coconut oil, macadamia nut oil, house blend, MCT oil, olive oil, avocado oil, macadamia nut butter with sea salt, macadamia nut butter without salt, coconut butter, macadamia nut butter blend. They also have salted chocolate macadamia nut butter. These are all available to you now at JimmyLovesFBomb.com. And if you head on over there now and you use the coupon code JimmyLovesFBomb, they'll give you 10% off of your first order. JimmyLovesFBomb.com. So it really needs to be based on your weight, how much glucose you give. But it does give you a good picture of not just fasting, but what happens after. And as I mentioned before, it's the postprandial elevations of both glucose and insulin that are important, and how long do they stay elevated. So we do the fasting, you get the sugar solution. In 30 minutes, we repeat glucose. An hour after the ingestion, we would repeat glucose and insulin. Two hours after, repeat glucose and insulin. And then the third, fourth, and fifth hour, we would simply measure glucose. Now, a lot of doctors, and, and when you're checking for gestational diabetes during pregnancy, it's only a two-hour test. But the hypoglycemia usually occurs after the second hour. And so you can miss a hypoglycemic reaction and a, and a potentially important diagnostic sign. And then you want to go below, beyond the third so that you know, do you continue to fall into the fourth hour? And some people do, and they feel worse. And even if they don't, you want to see, are you back to your baseline by the fifth hour? And what we would often see is very high insulin levels um, at the fifth hour. And we, since we stopped at five, we don't know how long that insulin hung around. And that's an important feature because all this excess insulin in your circulation long periods of time are going to damage your blood vessels. So C-peptide. This is another measurement of, of high insulin or no insulin. Now, we never use this. 
um, because we did the GTTs. But C-peptide is produced in equal amounts when you make insulin in your pancreas. It can be used to differentiate between type 1 and type 2. So type 2 is going to have high C-peptide, and the type 1 will have very low because they aren't producing insulin. It can be used to rule out a benign tumor in the pancreas called an insulinoma, where you produce huge amounts of insulin. Now, we, we checked for insulinomas in some of our patients because the insulin levels were very high, and yet we never found any. They were producing high amounts of insulin simply because their, their blood sugar insulin mechanism was so abnormal. So you'd need to rule it out if the levels are very high, but again, we never found it. You have to fast for eight hours before, and you may have to stop diabetes meds before, because if they're diabetes meds that stimulate more insulin, that's going to then uh, affect the test. And normals vary based on the lab. So with all of these, whenever you're looking at what normals should be, you, you have to follow the normals on the lab result that you get because they may not be consistent from test to test. So glycohemoglobin, you all know pretty much what that is. Um, it's measuring the amount of glucose that's attached to hemoglobin red blood cells. It's the glycation process, and we know glycation in a large amount is not a good idea. And so you see people with type 2 diabetes that's poorly controlled that can have a glycohemoglobin of 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 15%, uh, meaning they're carrying around a lot of damaging glucose in the system. Um, so it helps you not only diagnose, but it can help you monitor treatment. No fasting is required, which is also a, an important one because it can be done at any time. It is used for diagnosis. It's not to be used for diagnosis for gestational diabetes. There's a whole group of other variables or no normals that are used for gestational diabetes. Shouldn't be done in, in kids or in teenagers either. Um, if people have an iron deficiency anemia, it will affect the test. If you've had a recent bleeding episode where you lost uh, a lot of blood cells, you have severe liver or kidney disease, sickle cell trait can skew the results. But otherwise, it's quite a useful test. It should be done if you have a family history of diabetes, if you're overweight or obese, metabolic syndrome, or polycystic ovary syndrome. Normals, uh, you know, the American Diabetes Association considers 7% or less good control of diabetes. We don't agree with that. Um, a 6.9 A1C still means you have an average blood sugar in the high 150s. That's not necessarily a good thing to happen all the time in circulation. So diabetes is 6.5 or higher, prediabetes 5.7 to 6.4. Now, don't think you're safe if your A1C is 5.6. You know, it's like being a little bit pregnant, you know. It's, it's, it's going to show up sooner or later, so you might as well, you know, uh, realize you need to start taking care of yourself now. So a 5.6 doesn't take you off the, off the hook. You really want to be below the 5.7, and you want to be below five if you can get there. And certainly we know a number of people who've been on meds for diabetes um, actually do run perfectly normally one sees to the points where their doctor often don't believe that they actually had diabetes. I threw in metabolic syndrome um, because there are a variety of blood tests that are important for you to do, and it's important to know if you have metabolic syndrome. Now those of you outside of the United States the World Health Organization has slightly different values for metabolic syndrome. So you can look those up. 
Um, they also measure kidney function, and some of these are slightly different, but uh, you can find those readily on the Internet. So if your triglycerides are 150 or higher, now we, you know that we want yours optimally below 100. If your HDL for a male is less than 40, for a female less than 50, and you know as triglycerides go up, HDL goes down, high blood pressure 135 or 85 or more, a high fasting blood sugar of 100 or higher, and abdominal obesity. Um, a woman with uh, abdominal girth of more than 35, a man with more than 40. So you just have to have three out of the five. And what I noticed that we would usually see in our patients is the last one that would go up is the fasting blood sugar. They usually had three out of the other four. Now, the CRP, high-sensitivity CRP, which is an inflammatory marker, and this is the marker we're concerned about um, because if it's low level of inflammation all the, all the time, you know by now I think that that's really a risk factor for cardiovascular disease and a lot of other conditions. Inflammation is involved in cancer, it's involved in Alzheimer's, it's involved in almost every chronic disease, so it's important to know whether you're elevated. Um, non-fasting, um, that's fine to do it non-fasting, but if you've recently been sick, if you've recently had an injury or an inflammatory process, you don't want to run this test. It's not going to be a good reflection of chronic low-grade infection, and you don't want to get a false positive. And you can see the normals, are, of course, are optimally less than one. Now, there's a lot of controversy about whether this should be done. I don't understand why there should be. It's only a test, and it might give you some valuable information. But they can already be elevated in healthy people. Well, I mean, in my view, you may seem healthy, but if you're already starting to show some underlying low level of inflammation, especially if you have other risk factors, then it seems to me you ought to pay attention to that. Family history of diabetes, gestational diabetes, uh, polycystic ovary, those are all conditions where you want to look for inflammation, metabolic syndrome, anywhere where we know it's related to inflammation that can be made worse by increasing weight. Now, if you're on an anti-inflammatory drug, that can actually suppress the reading. So you may want to wait until you're off that before you have it done. It can be positive with arthritis. It also can be positive with hormone replacement therapy, which was surprising to me since so many are on hormone replacement therapy. So that may really be uh, a false positive. Now, hypothyroidism, this is an important one and often isn't addressed very well. Um, Low thyroid can be due to antibody production, Hashimoto's thyroiditis. That's the most common uh, cause of thyroid problems in the United States. <clears throat> it can be acute and get better, or it can become chronic, and you'll always have the antibodies. There are risks to getting thyroid uh, disease. Of course, aging is a risk for getting almost anything. Genetics um, is another one. Um, if you have family members who have Hashimoto's and possibility at some time in your life, you'll develop it. It is common in middle-aged women, although it can happen in men. But it seems to be more common in women. And I found it, we found it a lot in women as they were getting perimenopausal and menopausal. The other hormones go haywire, as does thyroid. The difficulty is there could be a very slow progression of the symptoms. So it's not like you're perfectly fine and within a few weeks you have all these new symptoms. Um, 
And because it's a slow progression, it's often missed, and symptoms aren't paid much attention to. Or you'll think, well, I'm just getting old, I'm supposed to feel this way. It can occur in pregnancy, it can occur postpartum, and these are serious times for it to go untreated because there is a higher risk of miscarriage, preeclampsia, which used to be called toxemia pregnancy, or having a premature birth. So having normal thyroid looked at properly prior to conception um, is, a, is a very important subject. These are just some of the more common symptoms of low thyroid. There are many. Uh, men with high cholesterol, you're depressed, and you either get an antidepressant or a statin. And doctors don't thoroughly check your thyroid. And I once read years ago that 35% of people who are treated with antidepressants who don't get better, don't get better because the underlying cause is hypothyroidism, and they don't get better until their thyroid has been treated. So you may wind up spending years on the wrong medication and not really dealing with the underlying reason why you have a high cholesterol or why you're depressed. Menstrual irregularity and fertility um, can occur with hypothyroidism. Dry skin, dry hair, dry nails, hair loss, weight gain, puffiness, edema, muscle aches and pains, hoarseness. If your thyroid is swelling, because in acute stages of thyroiditis, you get swelling and it can put some pressure on your voice box, on your larynx, then you may get hoarseness. Poor memory, chronic constipation, those are some of the common symptoms. Now, do any of you recognize yourself in these symptoms? I mean, they're very common. So what we measured to make sure we looked at everything was we certainly measured thyroid antibodies. A lot of doctors don't do that. And we also measured free T3. T3 is the active hormone. Free T4 is the stored hormone. And TSH is thyroid-stimulating hormone. Now, any, any, any one of those tests can be abnormal and in the wrong ratios. But you should at least do all of them. Now, a lot of doctors will simply put patients on T4. And for the next 20 years, the only blood test they will do once a year is measuring T4. So you're counting on someone who has a disordered metabolism to convert enough of the T4 to active T3. And if you aren't measuring that, you don't really know if your patient is still having symptoms because they don't have enough active hormone. So that's one of the issues you can see. And again, an early baseline is important because the condition is slowly progressive. Now, thyroid-stimulating hormone. There's some controversy about what the normal should be. And most labs will tell you the upper limit of normal is 4.5 to 5. Now, what this test means is that your pituitary gland is sensing that you're not making enough thyroid hormone, so it makes something called thyroid-stimulating hormone, TSH. So the TSH is high. It means your thyroid function is low. So the normal range is usually up to 4.5 to 5. In 2003, a long time ago, the American Association of Clinical Endocrinologists recommended that the upper limit shouldn't be any higher than three. And there are many doctors who practice the way a lot of low-carb physicians do, um, who feel that, the up, that it shouldn't really be any higher than one or 1.5 if your patient is symptomatic. So there's still a lot of people who are walking around with their supposedly normal thyroid blood test, but lots of symptoms and are not well regulated. So I'll give you something to talk to your doctor about next time.
Magnesium. Magnesium is a very, very important nutrient. It is the second most abundant nutrient in our cells. Magnesium hangs, hangs out in your cells, not so much in your serum. So measuring it becomes a bit of an issue. It's involved in more than 300 chemical reactions in the body. It helps regulate the way your body works. So by being deficient in it, and most Americans don't get enough, and, and it's hard to get enough from your diet, walk around with a borderline magnesium deficiency, and you can get all sorts of dysfunction in, in the chemical reactions of your body. It's best measured in your red blood cells. But most labs will simply only do a serum magnesium level. So that's really not one you want to rely on. We used to order a red blood cell and we'd still get a serum back. It was always very hard to get them to do a red blood cell. So less than 30% of U.S. adults consume the RDA for magnesium. Um, so supplementing, at least in a multivitamin, and I happen to feel everyone should be on a good quality multivitamin, multimineral, because there are just other nutrients you don't get enough of in your diet. But it regulates a great deal of things, and you can see from that list, it does a lot. Um, it can be low because of your soda consumption. Elderly people, of course, because of poor absorption and utilization, just like any nutrient, can be low in someone who's aging. Excess alcohol, many medications will also deplete you of magnesium. Stress and a high sugar intake, because you need magnesium to regulate blood sugar. If you have a high sugar intake, your body's going to eventually get depleted in that. And, and with stress, which I think everybody experiences, usually chronic, you lose a lot of magnesium. You also can lose a lot of B-complex. So another reason why I think we should really at least be on a good multivitamin meal. Low-carb sources, green leafy, uh, green uh, vegetables, nuts and seeds, fish, avocado, and dairy. So a lot of the good stuff. Vitamin D. Vitamin D is one of the four fat-soluble nutrients, A, D, E, and K. So you have to consume it with dietary fat. So all these women eating salads for lunch without any oil, because they're on very low-calorie diets, aren't even able to absorb the vitamin D from their food because they're not getting enough fat. Sun exposure is your best source, and everyone should get 10 to 15 minutes of sun exposure, uh, particularly in the morning, even if you're in places like Florida or Hawaii and, and L.A., because they have found out that people in those areas who you would think wouldn't be deficient in vitamin D actually are, and one of the reasons is sunscreen and you're not taking vitamin D, and it's very hard to get enough vitamin D um, from your diet. It, we know that it's deficiency of vitamin D is rickets, and so we know it's related to bone health and repair, but it's related to almost every cell in the body because vitamin D receptors are found in every cell in the body, not just bone. So it plays a role in immune function, and if you're low, you really want to get it higher. So you measure something called a 25 OHD, and it should be at least 30 nanograms per milliliter. Be careful because there's two different ways of measuring it. Um, so it's nanograms per milliliter. Now, optimum is most likely higher than that because 30 is just barely sufficient. So you want to measure it in people who are elderly who have milk allergies because milk has been reinforced, enriched with vitamin D, so you're not getting a source there. Vegans, vegetarians often are very low in vitamin D. Lactose intolerant, pregnancy, 
Uh, women need to take vitamin D when they're pregnant and breastfeeding or else their infant is going to be deficient in vitamin D, as they are. If you get limited sun exposure, if you're dark-skinned, if you're dark-skinned, it takes much more sun exposure for you to make enough vitamin D. And if you're obese, you need a higher dose in order to get your vitamin D levels up to where they should be. Now, there's a lot of association studies, um, not causative studies, except usually in bone health with vitamin D. So there are relationships with low vitamin D in um, multiple sclerosis, high blood pressure, cardiovascular disease, diabetes 1 and 2, um, <clears throat> and in cancers. So we really probably do need higher levels of vitamin D to be healthy other than the, the 30 nanograms per milliliter. But there is a lot of controversy about that. If I have time, oh, I'm running out of time. Uh, food sources, fish, egg yolks, beef liver, cheese. The other sources are usually too high in carbs, and they're enriched with a little bit of vitamin D. Now, cardiovascular, I'm not going to spend too much time on because um, Jimmy is really the expert on the particle size and all of that. But I think you all know that a total cholesterol isn't of that much value. Um, we, we look at triglycerides and HDL. Your ratio of triglycerides and HDL is a better reflection of, of insulin resistance. It's a better reflection of your particle size um, and particle number. Some of these numbers, when you go on a low-fat diet, particularly triglycerides, will get worse because it's even though triglycerides are a fat, they come from excess carbohydrate that your body can't utilize. And it's been mentioned before, there are no drugs that lower triglycerides as well. Uh, measuring the subfractions, these are the these are some of the places where you can go to get the subfractions. I took this from Jimmy's book. This, these groups are still around, so if you're looking where to get it, you can you can contact them. There are barriers to getting this done because a lot of doctors don't want to do it. If your LDL, which of course is just a, a, a computation number, it's not a good reflection of anything. Um, is high, then they're going to put you on statins and they think the job is done. So, so you may have to uh, work a little bit to get that done. And the tests are far less expensive than they were 10 or 12 years ago. I remember we started doing them at Atkins, and we didn't do it for very long because then Dr. Atkins passed away, but they, it cost $600 back then to get the subfractions done. And they're far less expensive now. And, and I think that if you know how to interpret it or someone to help you interpret it, it's worth the investment. Insurance often doesn't cover it. Um, and again, in some states, you can't order it. And these are some other places where you could order your test if it allows you to do that. So I have about one more minute, and I just wanted to update on a study that I found just a day before I came. I didn't read the study, but there was a an article written about a study, the first randomized control trial of the use of vitamin C or vitamin D with calcium in postmenopausal women. It was done over four years. Uh, there were, I think, 2,300 postmenopausal women, women over the age of 55, where the control group um, just simply didn't got a placebo. And the treated group were given 2,000 units of vitamin D along 1,500 milligrams of calcium. And what they were looking at is, as your vitamin D levels came up, what happened to your risks of certain cancers? And there are a lot of associations to that, but this is the first randomized trial. 
And what they found was, the, the, remember I said that the minimum of what's thought to be healthy for vitamin D is 30 nanograms per milliliter. The baseline level of both groups was 32 nanograms. So they just were barely in the sufficient level. Now, doctors would say that's normal. We don't need to increase it. So that's where they started. And the untreated group actually dropped a little four years later. So their vitamin D status got slightly worse. But the treated group, with just 2,000 units a day for four years, got up to 45. And their risk of cancers dropped significantly. The occurrence of cancers in this group during that time period dropped significantly. So that's an important study, and one that obviously is going to have to be looked at. But friend, and I, I keep my vitamin D level in the mid 40s, because when I, I took vitamins for years, and I took a multivitamin and a vitamin for bone that had vitamin D in it, but not as much. And after all these years, my vitamin D level was 29, which was shocking because I would have thought I would have been higher. So ever since then, I do supplement, and I keep my level in the mid 40s, because um, I got into difficulty when I. I got my level up to 70, and I have some issues whether some people should do that or not. But So I think it's an important study, and, I, and, and in my view, why wouldn't you just take an extra 2,000 if it may very well decrease your risks of cancer, including breast cancer in women? So um, who wants to wait 10 years till they do you know, a few more studies and say, oh, yeah, that works. So thank you very much. I appreciate it. Coming up next time on the Live in La Vida Low Carb Show, we'll have the non-medical question and answer panel from the 2017 Low Carb Cruise. Get show notes for today's episode at theliveinlowcarbshow.com. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review at iTunes. Thanks for listening to the Live in La Vida Low Carb Show. We'll see you next time. Disc of Light.